morning, everyone. I had written you about Right Now Media and really encouraging you to take advantage of that subscription we have. And I'd shared that they'd increased the prices uh, to about $200 per month, and it seemed to be a little shocking to some people. And so I reached out to Right Now Media and said, hey, is there any way we get a um, lower subscription? And they said, well, you have to talk to our financial person. And they gave me his email address, and so I wrote him. And he said, hey, well, why don't we get together in person, because I just moved to Woodland, Washington. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I said, okay. So he came over, and we, we spent an hour and a half hanging out. Nice guy. I think he might come here at some point and show us some of the great tools that Right Now Media has. I think we only spent about the last 10 minutes. It was like we're hanging out together, and it's like, hey, we haven't even talked about Right Now Media yet. And so I finally got to talk about the subscription price at the end. He lowered it down to, to $80 a month with a free month each year for paying annually. But anyway, I think it's a great tool. We're going to keep it. Really want to encourage you to check it out if you haven't already. And if you haven't and you're unable to access it or don't even know what I'm talking about, shoot me a message and I'll get you caught up on that because I'd like to see all our people and home fellowships be able to use it. Father, you are a good shepherd. I think about what Andrew shared and you laying your life down for the sheep, the many ways as our shepherd that you love us, including rebuking us when we're in sin. I think of that passage and how the shepherd has a rod and staff with him. And when you rebuke us at times, you use others to do so, Lord. Really the topic of this morning's verses. And I think for many people, probably one of the most unattractive things would be uh, rebuking someone else. But these are the verses we find ourselves at in Luke 17. I'd like to think you've brought them to us. They are important. There is a need in the Christian life to rebuke people in sin. And so I pray over these weeks that we discuss this topic, that you would plant your word in our hearts to familiarize us with the right, uh, right way to rebuke people and avoid the wrong ways. And I pray this morning as we look at these verses and judge as a good illustration, I believe, of um, what you want to accomplish in the life of the person who rebukes, because you want to work in our hearts first before we rebuke someone else. Help us to find the application, Lord, and take it with us, and I pray that we would, uh, that you would be preparing our hearts for these weeks that we talk about this sensitive topic. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is, If Your Brother Sins Against You, Rebuke Him But. If Your Brother Sins Against You, Rebuke Him But. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel, verse by verse, and we find ourselves at Luke 16. Nope, excuse me, Luke 17, verse 3. But go ahead and stay in Judges, because that's where we're going to be for most of the sermon. So I have four questions for you, and I think that they're pretty easy. At least the first one's very easy. Nobody should miss this. All right, first question. Who is a sinner? Everyone. Okay, that is correct. Listen to these verses. Second Chronicles 6.36, there's no one who does not sin. Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say, I'm clean from my sin? Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who never sins. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Now the second question, if everyone is a sinner, who must God use to rebuke sinners? Yes, if everyone is a sinner, God must use sinners to rebuke sinners. And this brings us to lesson one. God must use sinners to rebuke sinners. The third question, if God uses sinners to rebuke sinners, what is the difference between the person doing the rebuking and the person being rebuked? Verse 
me ask that one more time. If God must use sinners to rebuke sinners, what is the difference between the person doing the rebuking and the person being rebuked? Repentance, that's correct. The difference isn't sin, that's what they have in common. That's the similarity between the two individuals. The difference is repentance or unrepentant sin. Both sinners, but the person being rebuked is an unrepentant sin. God wants to see repentance in that person's life. Think about the Old Testament, when God used nations to rebuke other nations. What righteous nation did God use to rebuke unrighteous nations? There isn't, there isn't one, is there? There were no sinless nations, so he had to use sinful nations to punish other sinful nations. And then what did he have to do with those nations that he used to punish other nations? Then he had to punish those nations for their sins. For example, God used Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. Then God had to use Babylon to conquer the Assyrians after the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and to use Babylon to conquer the Jews. And then who did God use to conquer Babylon? The Medes and the Persians, you remember that, in Daniel 5 with the, the handwriting on the wall. And then who did God use to conquer the Medes and Persians after the Medes and Persians conquered the Babylonians, after the Babylonians had conquered the Assyrians, after the Assyrians had conquered the Israelites? Huh? He used the Greek Empire to conquer the Medes and the Persians. And then who did he use to conquer the Medes and the Persians? Or the Greek Empire. He used the Roman Empire. So... He's always using sinful nations to rebuke other sinful nations because there's no righteous nation that he can use. If you're with us on Wednesday nights when Jake was teaching through Habakkuk, you know that Habakkuk was upset about the wickedness of his people that God did not seem to be addressing or or dealing with or rebuking. And so let me just share some of these verses from Habakkuk. His complaint with God begins this way. You don't have to turn there, but Habakkuk 1.3, he says, why do you speak into God? Why do you make me see iniquity? And then listen to this. Why do you idly look at wrong? That's strong language. That is Habakkuk accusing God of doing nothing about the injustice that Habakkuk sees. In verse, he goes on and Habakkuk says, the law is paralyzed. Or God's, he says to God, your law is doing nothing. He goes on, he says, justice never goes forth. So he says, sin is never punished. There's no justice going forth. Justice, or the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So when it does go forth, it goes forth in a twisted or perverted way. God answered Habakkuk by telling him that he planned to punish the Jews, but by using what nation? So God told Habakkuk, I am going to punish the Jews, but I'm going to do so using what nation? Babylon. And how did Habakkuk feel about that? He was shocked. He basically says, how could you punish the Jews with a nation that's wickeder than them? Habakkuk 1.13, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent? This is Habakkuk accusing God again. He says, when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. When the wicked, referring to the Babylonians, swallows up the man, referring to the Jews, who's more wicked than the Babylonians themselves. Or why would you use uh, the Babylonians who are wickeder than the Jews to punish the Jews? So Habakkuk knew the Jews were bad, but the Babylonians are worse, so he doesn't understand how God could use them. But what's the alternative? What righteous nation could he use? Who was supposed to be the righteous nation? The Jews were supposed to be the righteous nation that God would use to punish sinful nations. But if the nation that is supposed to be righteous is unrighteous, there's nobody left. 
And so God is going to have to use unrighteous nations to punish unrighteous righteous nations, and some of those unrighteous nations will be even more unrighteous than the nation they punished and will then be punished themselves. After Habakkuk's complaint, or confusion, followed by the complaint, God responds that he's going to punish the Babylonians, and here's part of what he says. And it's as though God is speaking to the Babylonians. Habakkuk 2.16, he says, You'll have your fill of shame instead of glory. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. This is the cup of God's wrath that the Babylonians will have to drink. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence will overwhelm you. So God uses the Babylonians to punish the Jews, and then he uses the Medes and Persians to punish the Babylonians. Now here's the fourth and the final question. When God uses sinners to rebuke sinners, what is the temptation that the person doing the rebuking faces? Pride, that's right. And this brings us to lesson two. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, but part one, be careful of pride. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, but part one, be careful of pride. So if God wants us to rebuke people in sin, it's very tempting to us to want to look down on those people. It's very tempting for us to think that we are better than them. It's very tempting to think that they are sinners, but we are not. It's very tempting to be outraged over their sin without being outraged over our own sin. Remember when Nathan went and confronted David? Do you remember the outrage that David felt over the sin described to him? And then Nathan says, you are the man, and he was able to overlook his sins of adultery and murder while being outraged at the sin of a man who had stolen someone else's sheep, which obviously pales in comparison to what David had did. So it's very easy or tempting to be focused on other people's sin while ignoring our own which seems to be behind what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He specifically warned against this danger. Matthew 7, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So does God want us to take the speck out of someone else's eye? Okay, come on, guys, we can do better than that. Does God want us to take the speck out of someone else's eye? He absolutely does. He just wants us to first remove the log from our own eye. So this verse, as twisted as it becomes by the world, is not discouraging judging others. It's just saying that we should first judge ourselves. So let me say it like this. When we're supposed to rebuke people, we might start to see this huge chasm of separation that exists between us and between them. And so listen to what Jesus and Paul both say to discourage us from seeing this chasm or separation or difference between us and the people we would rebuke. And I ask the sound guys to put the verses up on the screen so you can see them next to each other. So Luke 17, 3, it says, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And that's the new verse we've reached in Luke's gospel that's instigated this sermon with me. The verse is about rebuking others, but it begins with the words, pay attention to yourselves, or in the New King James, take heed to yourselves, NIV, watch yourselves, NASB, be on your guard. Now that sounds strange. Someone else sinned. 
Where would we expect God to tell us to put our attention? On that person, on their sin. But he begins by first saying to put the attention here, on ourselves. Paul said something similar, Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then listen to this. Keep watch on yourself when you do so. When you go to restore someone or to rebuke someone, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. The temptation is not the sin the person is committing. This verse is not warning about going to confront someone in sin and that person's sin rubs off on you. There are verses like 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived, bad company can corrupt good morals or good habits. But that's not what's in view here. The temptation that Paul is telling us to be on guard against is the temptation to be proud, to think that we are better than the person we are rebuking. Now, as I was thinking about this all week, there was an Old Testament account that came to mind. Actually, uh, most, most of the sermon I prepared this week will be delivered next week because I, I kept reflecting on this chapter, this account in Judges chapter 20, because it illustrates so well what we're talking about. Now, we don't have time to go through the entire chapter. Uh, we're going to jump right into the middle of it, and so I'm going to give you the context so that it makes sense. And so there was a group of men who had raped this woman and then murdered her. It was this horrific sin that had taken place in Israel, and the news of it spread throughout all 12 tribes. All 12 tribes were informed about what these men had done to this woman. The men who committed this crime were to be executed, and they were from or belonged to the town of Gibeah, which was in the boundaries of Benjamin. Let me say that one more time. The men who had committed this wicked crime were from or located in the town of Benjamin or Gibeah, which was in the boundaries of the tribe of Benjamin. So the other 11 tribes come together and talk about this sin that was committed, and they're going to reach out to the tribe of Benjamin to get the Benjaminites to turn over these men who had done this. Look at verse 12. Judges 20, verse 12. And the tribes of Israel, this is the other 11 tribes, they sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. So unbelievably, the tribe of Benjamin would not turn over these wicked men who had done this. Now, just to be clear, the relationship to Luke 17, the reason I kept thinking about this is the 11 tribes are like the man who's supposed to go rebuke the other man in sin. It's like the tribe of Benjamin is the, is the individual in sin, and the other 12, 11 tribes are coming to rebuke him. Now, how do we explain the tribe of Benjamin not being willing to turn over these wicked men? Well, we explain it by considering what book of the Bible we're in, which is what? And what is the theme verse for this book? You got, every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. That is the explanation 
for these individuals uh, in Benjamin behavior. There, we, we think of one nation, but there were 12 tribes, and there were these very strong tribal loyalties. It was almost like 12 separate connected states. And so even though it was wrong in the tribe of Benjamin's eyes, they thought that the right thing to do were what was right in their eyes, as every man is doing what's right in his own eyes, is to protect the men who have committed this crime because they are our brethren and we should remain loyal to them. One lesson we can learn from this is that when individuals are in sin, we're not to show loyalty or favoritism toward them, even if they happen to be our what? Even if they happen to be close friends, or they could even be family members, which would be some of the toughest individuals to rebuke in sin. The tribe of Benjamin's behavior gets even worse. Look at verse 14. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah, which is where these men were, to go out to battle, notice this, to go out to battle against the people of Israel or against the other 11 tribes. So not only would the tribe of Benjamin not turn over the other 11 men, now they're going to do what? They're actually going to go to battle against the other 11 tribes. And it reminds me of what Pastor Nathan's talking about in Sunday school. We didn't plan it this way. He just decided to to teach this, and this sermon happens to serve somewhat as a supplement to that, of what was happening in the Corinthian church with the people who wanted to protect the man who was engaging in sexual sin. Remember, Paul had to, had to confront them. If you're at Sunday school, you're familiar with this. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2, Paul says, you are arrogant. You're proud. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so what happened was the Corinthian church had a man in their midst who was engaged in sexual sin, Paul, and they're proud or puffed up about it. They probably think we're so loving, we're so tolerant, we allow that we're so progressive and modern, we allow this man to be here engaging. We're not confronting him, we're not one of those legalistic churches out there, and so we allow this man to be here even every week because we despite what he's doing. And so Paul says, you shouldn't be proud of this. You need to get this man removed. And so, in other words, this man should have been removed from the Corinthian church, just like these men should have been removed from the tribe of Benjamin. But just like the Corinthian church was protecting this man, the tribe of Benjamin is protecting these men. Now, let's see the number of men on each side. Verse 15. The people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Verse 16, among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And then verse 17, the men of Israel apart from Benjamin or without the tribe of Benjamin being counted mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword and all these were men of war. Now just in case there were Uh, A lot of numbers there to remember. Let me be very clear about this. The tribe of Benjamin has 2,600 men and then 700 from Gibeah for a total of 26,700 men. The tribe of Benjamin has 26,700 men. The 11 tribes of Israel have how many men or how many soldiers? 400,000. So to be clear about this, 400,000 are about to go fight less than 27,000 men. Or let me say it like this. Less than 27,000 men are picking a fight (laughs) 
with 400,000 men. One tribe is picking a fight with 11 tribes. It's pretty easy to tell who's going to win, right? The Benjaminites are about to get slaughtered, aren't they? Look at verse 18. The people of Israel arose. The 12 or the 11 tribes of Israel is what's in view here. Arose. They went up to Bethel and they inquired of God. And they said, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Now, a couple things about this verse. First, if you've never heard this before, you should probably know this for any time you're reading the Old Testament. When it looks as though God spoke audibly, he typically didn't. What's in view is the Urim and Thummim is being used here, which was almost like casting lots or a way for God to reveal his will. But it would be wrong to look at this and think that God spoke audibly. And, that's, and that, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But it becomes even clearer, I believe, around verses 27 and 28, when the high priest is mentioned and God's will is discerned again because the Urim and Thummim were kept in the breastplate of the high priest. And so frequently when it says God said this or God chose this, it's, the way, it's referring to them casting lots using the Urim and Thummim to, to discern God's will versus them actually hearing from him audibly. Second, I'm convinced the 11 tribes asked the wrong question. Instead of saying, they said who should go first, but they should have asked, should we go fight? It was presumptuous of them to assume that God wanted them to go against Benjamin without first obeying the words of Luke 17.3 and Galatians 6.1. It was presumptuous of them to think about going to rebuke without first paying attention to themselves, keeping watch on themselves, lest they too become tempted. Anytime God ever wants us to go deal with someone else, who does he first want us to deal with? And I just, I guarantee this. There have just been enough times in my own life where I have went to deal with other people without first dealing with myself. And then God has had to deal with me <laughs> because I didn't deal with myself first. If Israel did this, or at least these 11 tribes, my suspicion is God would have moved them to be humble. And if they would have humbled themselves, then God would not have had to do what? Humble them. And this is a good lesson for us. We should always strive to humble ourselves so that God doesn't have to humble us. I know that I have felt humbled by God before and then in hindsight looked back and realized it's because I was proud and my suspicion is if I had humbled myself first, then God would not have had to humble me. And it's always much more comfortable to humble ourselves than when God ends up doing it for us. Don't ever think, well, do I want God to humble me or do I want to humble myself? Which one of those is going to be easier or go better for me? <laughs> it's always going to go better for us when we are the ones who humble ourselves first. God always comes on with a little heavier hand than we would use. The third thing is God only revealed that Judah should go first. He did not promise them what? Victory. Look at verse 19. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning, and they encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. So the 11 tribes go out against Benjamin, and the men of Israel, these 400,000 men, drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah, against the 27,000 men. And then notice this. You wouldn't believe it if it wasn't written here. Verse 21 
the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. And that is not what we would expect, is it? If you're familiar with the account, you expected that, but I can guarantee the first time you read it, you were surprised, weren't you? You did not expect to see that the 11 tribes went against the one tribe and lost. So it's surprising for multiple reasons. One reason is simply when you're outnumbered 27,000 to 400,000, you don't expect to win that battle. Second reason it is shocking to us is who appears to be in the wrong or in sin. Come on, who, who appears up to this point to be in sin and therefore should lose or get spanked? Benjamin. So the question is, why did Benjamin win? Or another way to say it is, and this is probably the better way to word it, it's not a question, don't, don't say this, don't say, why did Benjamin win? That's the wrong question. Say, why did the other 11 tribes lose? Don't say, why did God want Benjamin to win? He didn't want Benjamin to win. Benjamin's going to lose. Benjamin's going to be rebuked for their sin. The question is, why did God want the other 11 tribes to lose? And why did he want the other 11 tribes to lose? They're proud. We're in the book of Judges. Everyone's bad. <laughs> We're in the book of Judges. There are no good tribes. Nobody is walking with the Lord. The season of the Judges is 340 years. It was one of the spiritually darkest times in Israel's history. Everyone is far from God. The 11 tribes did not commit the same sin as the Benjaminites. But they were by no means innocent or more righteous, and it's just a good thing for us to remember that when we go to rebuke someone, maybe we haven't committed the same sin, although to be honest, much of the time we probably have committed that same sin ourselves. We want to remember that we're sinners too. The other 11 tribes didn't commit the same sins as the tribe of Benjamin, but they weren't righteous, they weren't innocent, they were plenty sinful, and so what does God want to see from them? He wants to see brokenness. He wants to see humility. He wants to see repentance. Does anyone remember when Israel lost to Ai? The timing is what makes it very significant. They had just defeated what? Jericho. So just picture this for a moment. Israel crosses the Jordan and experiences this incredible victory over what was viewed as an invincible impregnable city jericho they move from jericho and encounter a small settlement called ai and what happened they lost <laughs> they lost it was almost like these 11 tribes losing to the tribe of benjamin and they're shocked and joshua was shocked and he falls on his face and he says why did we lose and what does god say he says there's sin in the camp you lost because there's sin in the camp now, I am not saying that every single time we lose, figuratively speaking, in our lives, that it means there's sin. But I do want to submit to you that if you feel like you're repeatedly getting beat up by God, you might consider whether there's sin in the camp. 
it is a very unfortunate thing when individuals are experiencing God's discipline, but they think it's a trial. They think they're unlucky. They think they're unfortunate. And then they scratch their heads and it's like, why do all these bad things keep happening to me? And if someone could be honest, they'd say, because there's sin in the camp. God wants you humble. He wants you broken. He wants you repentant. Now, unfortunately, the 11 tribes were not asking this question or they were not considering whether they should be humble. Look how they respond to the loss in verse 22. But the people, the men of Israel, they took courage. This is not a good thing. You are not reading a good thing here. And again, formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. This is not how God wanted them responding to this defeat. To take courage is to encourage themselves. We hear the word courage in the word encourage, right? And it's not always a good thing to encourage ourselves. It is not always a good thing to take courage, and it is not always a good thing to encourage others. If you see someone approaching brokenness or repentance, the last thing you want to do is lift them up and prevent them from reaching that point God wants them to reach. So if people are heading toward a certain brokenness, it might not be the best time to encourage them. You can encourage them when? After they repent. After they repent, what can you encourage? Their humility, their brokenness. You can even tell them you're challenged by their example and what a great encouragement it is to you. There are plenty of wonderful, encouraging, great things to say to people after they repent, but be super careful about saying those things before they repent. God forbid you be the one that takes someone off of that trajectory toward repentance that God has them on. And so this was not a good thing for them to be encouraging themselves. It did produce some humility in the 11 tribes. Look at verse 23. The people of Israel went up, and they wept before the Lord until the evening, and they inquired of the Lord, and they said, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, but again, take this to mean the Lord discerned through the Urim and Thummim, go up against them. Now, did you catch it in the verse? What do you see the Israelites doing before this battle that they didn't do before the previous battle? First, the question they asked. They, first they said, who shall go up to fight? And now they said, shall we go up to fight? They're, they don't presume as much. There's some humility that wasn't present there before. Instead of assuming they know what's best, they ask what's best. But second, it says that they wept. And in verse 18, they refer to the tribe of Benjamin as the people of Benjamin. How did they refer to them in this verse? It's not a trick question. In verse 18, the tribe of Benjamin, those terrible, horrible people. In verse 23, what do they call them? Our brothers. Are we going to go fight against our brothers? The chasm's gone. There's an equality that they see existing between them and the Benjaminites that they didn't see before. Probably something good for all of us to keep in mind that when we go to rebuke a Christian, we are rebuking a brother or sister in Christ. The weeping looks good, but here's the problem. What kind of sorrow are they experiencing here? I'll give you a hint. It's not godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It's worldly sorrow. They're sorry about the 
loss they experienced worldly sorrow is always sorry about the consequences and in this case the 11 tribes are simply sorry that they lost and that's a huge number of people can you imagine that we read these numbers sometimes but really wrap your mind around that Eighteen thousand people dying that is a huge loss these are they would have known friends they could have been related to some of the people that died they're sobbing but godly sorrow is sorry sorrow over the sin itself not the consequences worldly sorrow can involve what and frequently does courtrooms are filled with it worldly sorrow is filled with what Weeping, sobbing promises and guarantees oh god if you if you just save me this time I'll never do this again I can't believe this happened Lord I'm so sorry you know the verdict is announced and they're just broke and sobbing all through the courtroom and there's no repentance not a hint of it it's only godly sorrow that produces repentance and if you want examples in scripture Saul Esau Judas three men who all looked incredibly sorry sobbing a grown man heaving in Esau and we're told he found no place for repentance in Hebrews 12. so God told the tribes to go but again he didn't promise what he didn't promise victory because of the absence of godly sorrow and look what happens verse 24 the people of Israel came near the the 11 tribes came near against the tribe of Benjamin the second day verse 25 and Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and notice this destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel all these were men who drew the sword so you didn't expect this either did you 11 tribes just got defeated by one tribe again but now we get to see something beautiful godly sorrow and notice all the evidences as I read through verses 26 through 28 all the people of Israel the whole army they went up they came to Bethel and they wept they sat there before the Lord they fasted that day until evening they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord and the people of Israel inquired of the Lord for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days and Phineas the son of Eliezer son of Aaron ministered before it in those days this is why I think the Urim and Thummim was being used because of the presence of the high priest here saying shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers the people of Benjamin or shall we cease and let's pause here they have finally reached the level of humility and brokenness that God desires for them and this brings us to the next part of lesson two if your brother sins against you rebuke him part two with brokenness over your sin if your brother sins against you rebuke him part two with brokenness over your sin Okay, now give me your attention how different do the 11 tribes look now from the time of the first battle they're like a different group these are like different people now in a few short verses we see seven wonderful things that we did not see before first there's no temple at this time but they did go up to where which is probably the second best thing where did they go up to they went to Bethel again you said that there was no temple so this was probably the best thing they could do second twice it says they were before the Lord which is Old Testament language for seeking God's presence third they wept 
Fourth, they fasted. Fifth, they sought a priest, Phineas, who you might remember from last Sunday's sermon. He's that godly man who was zealous for God's name and through the spear, through the Israelite man and the Moabite prostitute to bring the plague to an end. Sixth, they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then seventh, they inquired of the Lord in a very humble way, asking if they should even go to battle. In other words, they asked God what they should do versus telling God what they were doing. Have you ever like prayed, but you didn't really ask God what to do? You're just putting it before him and expecting him to bless it? It's like, God, I, I want you to help me I want to do this, so I'm not really going to ask if I should do it, and I just need your stamp of approval and blessing on it, so I'm putting it here before you in prayer. Amen. And you're kind of convicted because you know you're not holding it very loosely, but you're afraid if you hold it loosely, God's going to say no. And so instead, you just, but you want to be spiritual, and so you say, well, Lord, I'm going to pray about it, and I bring it before you. Please bless us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. They don't look like that now. They go very humbly, and it's like, should we even do this again? Should we even go to battle? Are we that bad that we shouldn't even fight them? Now, sadly, what we're seeing here with the nation of Israel is incredibly rare in the book of Judges. Just to give you an idea how spiritually dark this time is, you can look through the entire book of Judges, and this is the only place that you're going to see fasting. This is the only place that you're going to see the ark. And this is the only place you're going to see a godly priest. Now, if you're familiar with Judges, maybe you're saying, well, wait, what about chapter 17 and 18 with Micah and that priest? That was a religion he made up. It was an ungodly priest. It was a priest we shouldn't have seen. It was a priest we saw that was more a reflection of the spiritual darkness of the time. This is the only example of a godly priest in the entire book of Judges right here. And so my point is it just shows how far all 12 tribes had drifted from God and what God wanted to drive home in the other 11 tribes before they rebuked Benjamin. If you're familiar with Judges, you know it's largely a record of cycles. Israel Israel engages in sin. God raises up a a people to punish them. They cry out to God for mercy. God raises up a judge to deliver them. The judge delivers them, and then they go back into sin, and then the cycle begins. And there's seven cycles exactly like that in the book of Judges. And my point is all those times when Israel was crying out, to be delivered from the nation punishing them, it was worldly sorrow. It was not godly sorrow. That's why they kept being defeated, or that's why that cycle kept repeating itself. You say, well, Pastor Scott, aren't you being a little harsh? How do you know for sure that there wasn't godly sorrow? We know it wasn't godly sorrow because that pattern continues through the entire book, and this is why God could not have those 11 tribes defeating the tribe of Benjamin without recognizing how sinful they were too. And when God wants us rebuking a brother or sister in sin, he wants us keeping our sin in mind too. Look at the rest of verse 28. The Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel sent, set men in ambush against around Gibeah. And so God finally promises victory. We don't have time to read the whole battle. Go ahead and skip to verse 35. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. Now again, don't just glance over these numbers without appreciating them. Benjamin began with how many men? And now they have, they went from 26,700 and have now lost 25,100 of them. 
Verses 36 through 46 explain how the men of the tribe of Benjamin were killed. You can read that later on your own if you'd like. Look, to, look at verse 47. Every sermon, just to let you know, I begin with, let's just say, a lot of words, and I have to bring it down to less words, <laughs> okay? So you pull parts out, and some parts that got pulled out were the details of the battle. I'm not trying to overlook that. I didn't want to. I had a lot of notes on it, but we can't. You guys just, you guys don't want to stay here until 3 p.m. It saddens me. So those verses are removed. Now verse 47. 600 men of Benjamin turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. Now picture this. Really fathom what we're reading here. 600 of the original 26,700, barely 2% of the tribe of Benjamin is left. That means 98 out of every 100 men in Benjamin have now been killed. If you're familiar with the next chapter, does it end up being a problem for the other 11 tribes that Benjamin has gotten so small? That's what the next chapter is all about, Israel having to recover from their behavior in this chapter. Now, at this point, With Benjamin almost extinct and only 600 men left, what would you expect the 11 tribes to say now that they've almost wiped out their brother? I cannot believe we slaughtered almost the entire tribe. Our brother is almost extinct. There's only 600 of them left. We must stop before we destroy them completely. That's what you would expect the 11 tribes to say. But again, this is the days of the judges. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. And look at verse 48, an almost grotesque verse to read. The men of Israel turned back against these 600 people of Benjamin and struck the rest of the people of Benjamin or tribe of Benjamin with the edge of the sword, the city, the men, the beasts, all that they found in all the towns that they found they set on fire. It's got to be one of the saddest verses in the Old Testament to see the Israelites turning on their brother tribe like this, this indiscriminate and relentless slaughter of all the people who are unarmed, all the people who are helpless. And so the 11 tribes, they didn't just execute the perpetrators, they executed everyone they could find from Benjamin. They look like these wild, ravenous monsters as they just go after anything that's living and breathing, associated with Benjamin to destroy it. And this brings us to lesson four. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, but part three with gentleness. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, but part three with gentleness. Another thing that I know I have struggled with in my Christian life when rebuking people, lacking the gentleness I should have. If you look in Galatians 6 verse 1, or if you just remember the verse when I put it up earlier. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in what? In a spirit of gentleness. So again, we're told to address the speck in their eye, but we're told how to do it. He says to do it in a spirit of gentleness. And these 11 tribes, they definitely lacked the spirit of gentleness that God would have had them have. They punish Benjamin. They go way overboard 
To me, this is one of those great examples of James 1.20 that says that man's anger does not produce what? Man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And this is a good example of that. Man's anger here did not produce God's righteousness in almost exterminating one of the 12 tribes. And you just know, you say, are you sure about that? I'm, of course I'm sure. God expects these 12 tribes to continue. These are the tribes that are going to have 12,000 representatives of the 144,000. And so there's no way that he's going to have part of his people going extinct. It was not his plan for that, there to be this, this indiscriminate slaughter like this. Turn to the right to Judges chapter 21, verse 2. Chapter 21, verse 2. And the people, this is referring to the other 11 tribes. So the other 11 tribes that just almost wiped out Benjamin, they came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly about the extermination of Benjamin. And they said in verse 3, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? What is that? Do you see what they did here? They practically blame God. They act like it's his fault. It's almost like, how could you let this happen, Lord? How could there be one tribe of yours missing? These are your covenant people. And they act like they don't know why Benjamin is missing or almost wiped out when it was because of their cruelty. But I think we're seeing something here that's common. We mess up. Our mess up causes problems. We don't have the humility to acknowledge that it's our fault or that we did it. And so what do we do? We turn around and we say, how, how could this happen? How can this be? And maybe we even pray and we say, God, why would you let this happen? Maybe even say, why would you let this happen to me or to these people? And we're the ones who did it. It's our fault. But we don't have the humility to own it. And these 11 tribes, they don't have the humility. Now let's talk about the application. This sermon is going to lay a foundation for the few weeks we spend talking about rebuking others and then forgiving others who have sinned against us. Because what is one of the best ways to have a forgiving spirit toward others except to keep in mind your own sin or need to be forgiven, right? So this sermon lays that foundation and it has application for any relationship that involves rebuking sin. And what relationship in our life involves rebuking sin? That means rebuking a brother or sister in Christ. That means if you're married, rebuking a spouse. That means if you're a parent, rebuking a child. And that means if you're a sibling, rebuking a brother or a sister. And whenever we rebuke sin, we want to apply Jesus's words in Luke 17, 3 and pay attention to ourselves. We want to apply Paul's words in Galatians 6, 1 and keep watch on ourselves lest we be tempted. And practically, this means that we strive to apply the lessons that God wanted these 11 tribes to learn. Let me say that one more time. Practically, we want to strive to apply the lessons that it seems God wanted these 11 tribes to learn when they went to rebuke Benjamin, and that is being careful of pride, remembering that we are sinners and we're not better than the people we rebuke, and rebuking them in a spirit of gentleness.
And just camping out on that last point for a moment, what was it that drew you or led you to repentance? It was God's what? I mean, it's the prodigal son who's far from home, and he's suffering, but he says, my father is kinder to the servants. They would be treated better than I'm being treated right now. The prodigal son, it was his father's kindness that led him to repentance. And it's Romans 2, 4 that says God's kindness is, led, is what led us to repent, which is really shocking to me because God's wrath is a really good reason to repent too. I don't want to be cast into hell, and I know none of you do either. So I can think about God's wrath and want to repent, but we're told it's God's kindness because we recognize that when we go to him, we will be forgiven if we're humble and repentant. Now, why am I mentioning that? Because just as it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, it's probably going to be our kindness toward people in sin that makes it easier for them to repent. When we rebuke people and they hear what in our voices, it is going to make it easier for them to repent. Concern. Love. Affection. What is going to make people's flesh possibly flare up, make them defensive, and make it harder for them to repent? pride from us, hostility, aggressiveness in our demeanor or attitude toward them. If we come in a spirit of pride, we have cruel words, they're going to be more likely to defend themselves, make excuses. But if we will come gently, kindly, lovingly, we provide a better environment for them to be able to repent. If you have any questions about the sermon or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service and would consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you for this account. I love your, your word, the Old Testament, and the great examples and illustrations it gives us. I don't know how many times I've read that account in Judges 20, but it's always challenged me how you first beat up those 11 tribes before giving them victory over Benjamin. Just help us to remember, remember that as we look at these verses in Luke 17. You would have us be humbled before you have us go and be used to humble someone else, that you would have us rebuke the sin in our own lives before rebuking the sin in someone else's life. We thank you for the great privilege it, it has been for us to repent and to be able to find forgiveness through Christ. I thank you for the truth of Romans 2, 4, that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance, that loving Father who waits at home for us whenever we are prodigals, always, always able to return to you and know that we receive your love and, and affection in response. Help us to keep that in mind and apply it to our lives in relationships with others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.